You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Um, our next reader uh, comes from inside our community, our little hut, our little literary hut, although she has connections outside it, I believe. Uh, she was, I think, most famous for a um, short story, a Nebula-nominated short story called Still Life with Boobs, which was um, made quite a splash, I think it was 95? 2005. 2005, all right. And... Um, um, she is the, uh, well, a Nebula nominee and a, um, uh, what's the other award? The Spectrum. The Spectrum Award, okay. So she's a, a certified successful science fiction and fantasy writer who also writes YA, who also writes erotica. Uh, but we'll talk about all that later. At this point, it gives me great pleasure to introduce a writer that I uh, I know through Wisconsin, and I know through her work, and I know through her reputation, who's visiting us here in San Francisco, Ann Harris. Thank you. Is this, uh, this, is, uh, this is working the way it is, right? Here. I guess. Okay. It's, um, it's such a pleasure to be here, um, and really having a wonderful time in San Francisco. I want to thank Rena and Jacob for making everything so easy and comfortable for me. Um, they they really have opened their home to me, and and it's um, it's it's just been delightful, and I'm having a lovely time. And thank you all uh, for coming. Um, I'm going to read from two books tonight. Um, I write under two names. Um, I write young adult science fiction as Pearl North. And I write male-male erotic romance, says Jessica Freely. Um, so I'm going to read first from um, The Boy from Elysees. This is the second volume in a young adult science fiction trilogy uh, that's published by Tor Books. And um, I'm just going to jump in. And I'm not really even going to introduce it because I think that would just confuse things. So. Um, this is a, I, I'm going to tell you, <coughs> Poe is the main character of this book, and he um, was raised in a, a female-dominant society, and he's now been transplanted into an egalitarian one, and he's, he's struggling uh, with a, a dramatic shift in expectations. Um, and he tells us a folktale that he grew up hearing. So I'm going to start with that. Um, you pull the mic here? Is it a little a little bit closer, like this? That's a little better, yeah. Is that and should I just maybe? Is that better? Like that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> At last, the storm subsided, and Poe allowed himself a few moments of lying there, empty. He remembered an afternoon when he was small. Somehow, over all the years, it came back to him in every detail. The smell of hot earth and the feel of it in his hands, the buzzing of the bees, the distant voices of his family, and the nearer voice of Kip, his mother's old sire. Though Poe's grandmother was dead, 
The old man had fathered three daughters, all in the same landed family. He was well provided for and content, with granddaughters to tease him and dote on him, and a vegetable garden to tend, now that he was too old to plow the fields. Poe must have been very young, because he was helping Kip weed the tomatoes and not out with the others doing the hard work of getting the summer grain planted. Did you know that a woman's tears come from the ocean, but a man's tears come from the earth? Kip asked. When Poe didn't answer, he continued, so it is only natural that a man's tears should return to the earth. Poe was crying because his cousin Apollonia had knocked him down at lunch and taken his cinnamon cracker. Poe wiped his face and stared at the old man. He'd always been fascinated by Kip's face, the myriad lines intersecting and curving, always following the immaculate structure of his classic Elysian features. Kip could be a bit haughty about his rank as a stud, but he was a kindly old goat and fond of his grandson. It's true, said Kip, because long ago, long before Queen Belrea united Elysees, there were no men. Poe gaped at this. There would never be as many males as, as women, it was true, but none at all. The old man was lying. Then how did the women get babies? The women made themselves pregnant, the way the ringtails do. Yes, yes, it's true. Kip could see that Poe was skeptical. At that time, all the women knew the tale of the lizard, and they could all reproduce parthenogenically, like the ringtail does, not just special persons. And the land everywhere was green, not just here east of the Leon Mountains, not just in a few scattered river, river valleys, but all over the land, yes, the whole land, the plain of Aeor, and even Shinash across the sea. All of it was as green as a lowland barley farm in spring. Even up in the hills? Kip laughed, and looking back now, Poe realized that it was at his naivety, which could not imagine a world beyond his own dusty mountain town. Yes, even here in the hills. And the reason that the land was green everywhere was that a certain flower grew that was called the lion's bloom. The lion's bloom put out a pollen that was a powerful fertilizer, and everywhere it fell, it made things grow. Life was good in those days, and everyone danced and sang all day long. But one day, the blooms forgot that they were plants and fell in love with the women. Indeed, the beauty of a woman living in contented abundance is so powerful that it caused the blooms to grow arms and legs, and they dug themselves out of the ground, and they turned into men. And when they stood before the women, the beauty which had formed them made them continue to grow, and their bodies took the form that will please women most. The women were delighted with their new companions, and life continued quite happily for all until the next harvest. With no more humans, the plants did not grow in the same abundance as before. In fact, they were in danger of dying off entirely. When the women saw this, they were most dismayed, and this made the men unhappy. Everyone cried. The women's salty tears made the land more barren, but where the men's tears fell, things began to grow again. One man loved his consort so much that he begged her to sacrifice him, to cut him down like a stalk of grain, and his blood flowed across the land and became the Leon River, where the land is most fertile of all. And that is why a man must give his tears and sometimes his life to the soil, 
so that some of that fertilizing property that he still possesses is returned to the earth for the generation of plant life. And that is why other parts of the world that do not practice this are more barren than ours. So when you cry, Poe, hang your head so that your tears drip down onto the earth. And now I'm going to read a little bit, um, a couple of scenes uh, from Amaranth and Ash. This is by Jessica Freely, and this is a transgender class warfare romance. <laughs> All right. <coughs> yeah. So where did I want to start here? Yeah, another transgender class. Yet another, yet another <laughs> one. I know, I know, I know. <clears throat> and what do we find there but a shell of all things? Quite a savage little beast, too. Yes. As Grail walked into the Grassland Saloon, her worst fears were confirmed. Evan Scar sat on a stool, surrounded by avid listeners, regaling them with Amaranth's, Amaranth's story. Did it assault you? asked Cruz, whose clients numbered among the highest echelons of the L.I. Only with its odor, said Evanstar. <coughs> the others twittered with amusement at this gem of wit. But truly, Evanstar went on, Salma, Mikkel, and I were grateful to escape with our lives, were we not? He looked to his cohorts. Salma and Mikkel nodded, soaking in the reflected glamour Evanstar's story cast upon them. You should have seen the look it gave Evie, said Mikkel. I thought the marsh rat was going to kill him on the spot. Please, Mikkel, no need to be rude. Let us simply describe it as a chell. Surely that's ugly enough. Mikkel gave Evanskar a wounded look, and Evanskar, seeming to regret drawing participants into the conversation, ignored her. At any rate, it was not Amaranth's guest we needed to worry about. It was the host himself. He was there, asked Cruz. He arrived after we got there, and when he saw us, he... Evanscar, said Grail, stepping up and placing a hand on the other Vasai's shoulder. Here thoughts raced. How in the name of all holiness was she going to redirect this conversation or salvage even one shred of Amaranth's reputation? You are forgetting that you were not the only one there, and I fear your enthusiasm for a good story has the better of you. Evanscar smiled, but the look in his eyes promised retribution. Silence hung about them now as the onlookers waited to see what would happen next. Everyone knew that Grail and Amaranth were friends. They expected Grail to come to Amaranth's defense and so were unlikely to believe anything she, she said in that line. What was she to do? Perhaps the only thing that would divert them was an even greater scandal and to be believable. It must be one that benefited Grail not at all. I'm afraid there's been a terrible misunderstanding, C went on, her voice shaking, which only gave greater credence to what C was about to say. It is true what you say, Evanscar. Amaranth did indeed have a chell in his lodgings, but I'm afraid you've misunderstood the reason. Amaranth admitted Ash and let him remain there as a personal favor to me. Oh, Grail, you funny old thing. You can't expect us to believe that you, the soul of propriety itself, 
are consorting with a chell. Grail shook her head. Her stomach felt tight as a tin drum. No, not <coughs> consorting. Of course not. <coughs> Merely giving aid. You see, that chell is my brother. A collective gasp went out among the law onlookers, and those nearest, nearest here gave, took a step away. You're making it up, said Evanscar. That is not how Amaranth behaved, and besides, you can't know who your brother is. Both good points. Amaranth was trying to make it look like I was not involved, but I, can, I cannot allow him to suffer for my sake. As to the family connection, you are quite right. I can't know that the Chell is my brother, but the Chell can. How? Another good question. It seems our mother did not follow the rules. She snuck into the temple grounds. You know how Chell are. Every month or so, she snuck in, and later, when I was older, yearly, so she couldn't keep track of my appearance. It seems she passed on recently, and on her deathbed, she told Ash to seek me out. Grail took in the expressions on the faces surrounding him. It was working. Even Evanscar was wrapped. Many of them looked on here with disgust, but there were those in whose eyes envy gleamed as well. Chell or not, Grail had family, or would if the whole thing were not a complete fabrication. The rest is quite simple, C went on. My brother approached me, demanded money or he would expose the truth. I confided in Amaranth, and my friend, more brother to me than that loathsome Chell, offered his apartment as a reading, meeting place. I paid him off, you see, though I regretted it almost immediately. It became obvious he would demand more. She turned to Evanscar. I have to thank you. Until I came in just now and heard your understandable, if false, version of events, I was tempted to keep paying the marsh rat off but I can't sacrifice Amar Amaranth's reputation for my own. I must say, I find myself much relieved. It was an unsavory thing, acquiescing to the demands of such a creature. Now, whatever comes next, I may at least respect myself. Evanscar held Grail's gaze a few seconds before glancing at the onlookers. To one, they stared at Grail. If nothing else, her version of the story had won with the crowd. It would do Evanscar no good to insist on his own now and would make him appear chellish to do so. Whatever Evanscar pri privately thought, he had little choice but to incline his head and say, Well, Grail, you have astonished us all. And now I'm going to switch <coughs> to um, one of the main characters. Grail is a supporting character but plays a pretty pivotal role in the story. Um, but I'm going to uh, read a section um, from Ash's point of view. Ash is the chell in question, and he was, in fact, having an affair with Amaranth. Um, but now he has, um, he has left Elyon, the, the upper-class district, and he's returned uh, to his home, to Chellon. <clears throat> and he has this conversation with... Um, with another character. <clears throat> with his clothes still sticking to his damp skin, Ash made his way up Glean Street toward the silt grass marsh. He drew the salt-tinged air of Chalon's main thoroughfare about him like the familiar folds of an old coat. 
On the corner, two people argued for possession of the body of a dead dog. He crossed the street to avoid them. This brought him into vin the vicinity of the soul cellar. She looked up at him with sharp, sharp eyes and waved a hand over the display table. Choose. Tiny boxes of all shapes and colors crowded the table. They were brightly decorated with paint and bits of paper and ribbon, whatever the seller could glean or barter for. Each one was unique and had a string for wearing around the neck. The belief that Chell were without souls was the essence of their degradation. No soul meant no place for a god to dwell and guide the individual. But however looked down upon they might be, Chell had no lack of ambition or imagination. Inside each brightly decorated box was a small figure or object representing a god. The idea was for the customer to choose the vessel that appealed to her most. Whichever god rested within was the one whose guidance she most urgently needed. Soul sellers were popular fixtures in Chalon, and considering the difficulty most Chell faced simply getting enough to eat, Ash found it incredible that he'd never encountered a soul seller who did not do a brisk business. Choose, said the soul seller again. Ash looked at the Chell closely. This was not just some grass burner looking for a way out or a gleaner trying to get ahead. He noted the smooth cheeks, the strong jaw, the rounded shoulders, and prominent voice box. She wore a dress, but was androgynous all the same. He inhaled sharply. You're Visai, he murmured. The soul seller grinned. Almost was, but no. Mother was fond and wished to keep me. Ash took an involuntary step back, as if what the soul seller's mother had done to her were somehow contagious. This embarrassed him, and he corrected himself, winding up closer to the soul seller, seller than ever before. He steadied her, tall, though not as tall as she might have been with better food, long of limb, and beneath the grime in a soul seller's motley costume, quite beautiful. Of course, he'd heard stories of mothers who, despite the generous payment program, still did not wish to give their Versailles offspring up to the temple. Ordinarily, others around them intervened, and the infant was duly delivered to its rightful place. But once in a while, so seldom that until now Ash had dismissed it as a myth, a parent's desperation to keep her child was so intense that it drove her to maim it, removing the one undeniable indication that the infant was Visai, and not simply female. Ash became aware that he was staring. He lowered his gaze. I'm sorry. Why? You didn't do it. She looked back at him matter-of-factly. If you were really that broken up about my ignominious fate, you can buy one of my souls. I assure you, they are the best in Chelan. I don't believe in gods, said Ash. No? Are you sure? He shrugged. Another Vasai told me once. Another Vasai. I don't know whether to thank you or call you a liar. Ash shook his head. You're still Vasai, no matter what else has been taken from you. Can't you go to the temple and explain? What ally will have a defective Vasai treater? And what of the other Vasai? Would they welcome me, do you think? 
Ash thought of Evanscar and Grail. He said nothing. Here, at least, I have a trade. I am an oddity, but one afforded a certain degree of respect. Do you really think my fortunes would be better in a lion? No, Ash admitted, feeling awkward and wishing he'd minded his own business. Sorry, I skipped a bit. So you knew of a sigh once, truly? Yes, I was injured and he helped me. He, the soul seller raised an eyebrow. That was his preference. Ah, his preference. Her mouth tightened. You are a strange little man. A chell who knows of a sigh, who wears a fine coat but smells of silk grass. I am, he admitted. To myself most of all, I think. You really don't believe in the gods? I don't know. The sigh I knew, he didn't. He should know, right? The soul seller stared at him. Her eyes were a pale color, somewhere between green and gold. And what about souls? Do you believe in those? Ash drew a cautious breath. I didn't used to, but now I do. Because of your Visai. If this person's Visai soul had survived her mother's intervention, then she would know surely what Amaranth and Ash now knew as well. Yes. The soul seller gestured to the table once more, and Ash wondered if their talk had simply been to bring him to this point, where the lure of self-knowledge was at its peak. Choose. And what of it? What was one more day burning silk grass? Pick for me, he said. She cocked her head and gave him a wry smile of acknowledgement. A moment later, the smile was gone as the soul seller looked at him as only of a sigh is capable of looking. Her hand shot out and snatched up a small hexagonal box decorated with red and yellow circles. This one. Ash handed her his coin. While he waited for his change, he opened the box. Inside were two tiny figures made from twisted bits of colored paper. They were entwined with one another. The lovers, he said aloud. Go back to your Versailles, the soul seller told him, handing him his change. Love is too rare to bow to honor. Ash stared at her. The soul seller stared back. You of all people should understand why that's impossible, he said. The soul seller laughed. Now who's missing a part? Cool. Let's take um, uh, 7.1 minutes, get a drink, uh, support children everywhere. And uh, then we'll come back and um, talk about books. Yep. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.